unmissable stories from around the globe. From the BBC World Service. My happy place, this is who I am. <laughs> Search for the documentary, Lives Less Ordinary, and Amazing Sports Stories, wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, my guest today began thinking about ageing and retirement when she was still in her 20s. Not because she was about to stop working, quite the contrary. She was at the beginning of what would become her life's work to understand the ways in which our increasing life expectancy was changing the world. Professor Sarah Harper runs the Institute of Population Aging at Oxford University and is a global authority on how healthcare, housing, infrastructure, migration, almost all aspects of society will need to adapt to us living for longer. Societal changes also affect how many babies are born and we'll be hearing how Sarah leads studies that explore people's attitudes to having children and why in many parts of the world the number of babies being born is changing dramatically. Sarah Harper, welcome to The Life Scientific. Hello. I want to start with a myth that you quote at the beginning of your book, How Population Change Will Transform the World, which claims the world's population is growing exponentially and out of control, and the reason is that too many women are bearing too many children. Why did you begin with that? I began with that because that was the belief that was around uh, for a lot of the second half of the 20th century. And yet at the same time, we were having population ageing, which was being driven by reductions in childbearing. So what we call the total fertility rate, which is the number of children that are born per woman of reproductive age, was consistently going down, first of all in Europe and North America, and then it was spreading out into Asia and Latin America, so that only sub-Saharan Africa still has very high rates of childbearing. And because of that, world population isn't going to reach 24 billion, which is what we once Mm. feared. The UN believe that by about 2050, we will hit probably 9, 10 billion, and then we will probably flatten, maybe go up a little by the end of the century. But basically, we are looking for at a far smaller population than we once thought. And why do falls in fertility happen? If you give women access to family planning, Uh, and you improve the health, their health and the health of their children so that every baby who is born has a chance of living rather than dying. And fundamentally, if you educate girls, that means that you keep them in school for longer, you give them skills and tasks so they don't just think of becoming mothers, but also you empower them to choose the number of children they want. Then in most countries of the world, women will choose to have fewer children and are enabled to have fewer children. Mm. Uh, Of course, at the same time as fewer children being born, we are living longer, as you say. As soon as 2050, the world will have the same number of people over 60 as there are young people under 15. Yes, that's quite an amazing statistic. Mm. So remember, what we're talking about is fewer children being born and we're living longer. So generations will just (laughs) simply replace themselves. But it, it will change the world because we have grown up with the idea that you have lots of young people being born and coming into our societies and energising them and working. And when you have over half your population aged over 50, and we will soon see that in some European countries, um, that changes the whole dynamic of society. Mm, mm. Let me take you back to your younger days, Sarah Harper. You were born in Twickenham, but your family moved soon after to the Chilterns between Oxford and London. 
I gather your mother would regularly take you and your sisters out on nature walks. That's right. So um, her father, my grandfather, was a horticulturalist. So she had grown up just surrounded by plants and the natural environment. And I think we absorbed a huge amount of knowledge from her. My father was a little different. He was quite quiet, but he loved books and music. He loved the theatre. And I think what was really important was that I learned so much from my parents because I went to a very, very small con school and the nuns very much thought if you did get a job it would be one of service so you might become a teacher or a nurse if you didn't um, just get married and if you didn't and just get children. married and have right. children yes. yeah and as a consequence the level of education i got was actually pretty poor but i had all this opportunity thank goodness you had the learn. stuff at home Absolutely. yes yeah. yes yes and hearing you talk about your nature walks with your mother mm. sounds like you know biology and the natural world would have been the obvious choice for you. But you actually went to Cambridge and studied anthropology. I did. And you're right. I mean, when I was little, I think if anyone had asked me, I thought I'd be a biologist. But in fact, I, I can remember exactly what happened. We, we had um, an old girl who came back to the school and I was about 12 or 13 and she had left school and gone to the University of London. And she gave this amazing talk about depending where in the world you live, it will affect your health. And so if you live in Asia or Africa, you'll get acute infectious diseases and you'll probably die very young. But if you live in Europe, you'll be affected by chronic disease, heart attacks and strokes and cancer. I'd never thought of that. I thought that was just amazing. And that's why I I went to do anthropology. Okay. And university life, presumably, you were happy there? I really sort of threw myself into it. It was so different from the convent. And I became the student union president. And then Mm. I discovered student journalism. And I loved student journalism. And I thought, actually, that's what I want to do. I want to be a journalist. You saw that as a career? I definitely saw it as a career. And and at that stage, there were a variety of fantastic graduate training schemes. So there was the Thompsons, if you wanted to work for papers, there was ITN, and the BBC had a news and current affairs graduate training scheme. Mm. The problem I had was that I was up against all these men who had gone to schools where they probably did journalism at school. You know, we never did this at, at the convent. And I knew there was no way I could get into the BBC. So I wasn't quite sure what to do. But one of my tutors said, have you thought of doing a PhD? And I really hadn't thought of doing a PhD. I was going to be a journalist. Mm. But there was a a fantastic group at Cambridge and they were looking at rural urban migration in India and they had postdocs and PhDs attached to this programme. And the main bit of the programme was looking at young men moving into the cities. And I thought, well, what happens to the women, children and older people who are left behind in the countryside? And so I thought... I I would love to study that. So maybe three years doing a PhD and going to India would would be really rewarding. Mm. But I also knew that it would give me three extra years to do student journalism. And then I would have a real choice at the end of it. What, to just enhance your chances of getting into somewhere like the BBC? Exactly. (laughs) But PhD, going to India, things didn't quite work out the way you'd planned. No. So I I had um, a partner called Andrew and I'd only just got to Oxford when a virus attacked his heart. He had something called viral cardiomyopathy. He was only 22, but it basically destroyed his heart muscle. And so there was no way I could leave him and go to India. So Oxford gave me a suspension and I, I dropped out of Oxford a bit but then I changed my PhD to look at migration in the UK which wasn't really what I wanted to do but, but it that, kept you it kept you close it, it kept me um yeah and he lived for th- uh, three more years but the only thing that would save him would be a heart transplant and Sir Terence English gave him a new heart at 22 he was the youngest heart transplant patient he had a second heart and then he, uh, first person in this country to have two hearts and then he died after that um mm. but 
throughout that time, I'd kept my student journalism up. So you, you ended up doing the PhD and that and, then got you into well, journalism. So what happened at the end of this, I thought, well, I, I really do enjoy journalism. So I applied to the BBC and I got onto one of the graduate news and uh, current affairs training schemes. And I really loved it. But having done that in-depth research... You got uh, the bug. I had the bug. Mm. And so I left and went back into academia. So you left for a research position at the University of London and you began studying mass retirement. That's right. So I, I worked for two years trying to understand where did mass retirement come from? Mm. Where did the modern concept of ageing come from? Mm. Um, and I think part of the issue at the time was a lot of organisations and companies were starting to make retirement compulsory. Yeah, that's it's, so it's very interesting. So in the 1950s, there was actually something called the Phillips Report that came out warning the UK that we were beginning to age. You know, uh, and that's because our fertility had or our childbearing had consistently dropped throughout the 20th century. And as a consequence, what we were seeing was this move of companies to introduce fixed retirement ages. So at the end of the 50s, very few companies had fixed retirement ages. And mm. by the early 60s, by 1963, two thirds of the large organisations in the UK had introduced fixed retirement ages, and they typically coincided with the state pension age of 65. Mm. Um, but of course, I mean, things we now know are changing dramatically. You know, back then when the 65 retirement age came in, people weren't living much beyond yeah. that age anyway. Uh, indeed, when it was introduced in Europe by Bismarck, he set it at 65, and yet half the population was dead by their mid-40s. Uh, and in fact, if, <laughs> if you were to e e extrapolate that uh, today, given that half our population now lives in Europe to about 80, the pension age should be about 103. I mean, that's that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, what's happening now, of course, what we're seeing is that People are retiring, say, in their mid-50s even, living till 85 or 90. So they're spending several decades living in retirement. That was the case with your dad, wasn't it? You know, he was retired for longer than he worked at IBM. That, I mean, he, he, he died just before COVID, in fact, and he, he was very proud of the fact that he was an IBM pensioner longer than he was an IBM worker. But there's some really serious sort of data behind this because basically what happened was we had a mini baby boom between the 1940s and early 1960s. Suddenly in the 1970s, 1980s, all these baby boomers started entering the labour market and we had huge youth unemployment. We remember we had a lot of very large organisations and then they just started bringing it further down and saying to people, why don't you retire earlier and earlier? And the demographic reason was because then they could release jobs for younger people. Right, right. And so at the end of the 20th century, we saw this rather unfortunate situation where we were having particularly men, because it was still men who'd had these careers for life. They were retiring as young as their mid-50s, and then they were living for about 30 mm. years on mm. average after that. Um, and you know, rapidly, I think that cohort began to realise that, you know, this idea of a huge period of doing nothing, losing status, losing network, losing income was not ideal. And so uh, when we went into the 21st century, the trend, is, the trend is started to reverse. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Well, Sarah Harper, after looking at retirement in the UK, you had an idea for a new research project. It was the late 80s and nearly 10 years since China had introduced its one-child policy. You wanted to study how the demographic changes it was creating was going to affect Chinese society. 
Yes, so that was, I, I, I had just started my lectureship and I had been asked to do some modelling about how the one-child policy was going to impact the ageing of China. I then got some money and an invitation to go to Shanghai. And I went and I had an interpreter who happened mm -hmm. to be a, a doctor and he and I were, were free to um, go and see all his patients and go to the clinics and go to uh, the growing number of older people's homes and really try to understand, given that they are aware that they're going to alter their age structure, what are they doing about it? Well, Sarah, to the mid-90s now, in 1994, you were offered the chance to go to the US to become visiting professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. That was just the most amazing opportunity. Importantly, it coincided with the National Institute of Ageing under a wonderful director called Richard Sussman, who'd had the vision um, to set up a whole series of centres on the demography and economics of ageing. And at that time, most people who were looking at ageing were looking at healthcare or pensions. Right. And he was saying, no, no, we, we've really got to look at the societal impact. And it was very beneficial when my time came to an end and I, I had to come back to the UK. And when I came back, I had, uh, in fact, the opportunity to go back to Oxford on a research fellowship. And it was one of those decisions that career-wise at that time, that was not probably the best thing. But by then I had three very young children. I had a five-year-old, a two-year-old and a seven-week-old baby. And I, I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to cope with going back to a full-time lecturer or a research So professor. this was a part-time... I did it part-time for five years whilst my children right. were growing up. But because of my experience in Chicago, I decided that actually I'd like to run my own institute. Mm, yes, or rather ambitious, one might say. You know, the idea to start your own research yes. institute, and that was a big break for you, wasn't it? Setting it was, up the institute. It was, and 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 if you look back over my career until then, it it was backwards and forwards, trying to work things out. Journalist, being a researcher, going to different parts of the world, and then it got very stable. And so, for the last twenty five years, more or less, I have been the director of this institute. Mm. In the last ten years, Sarah Harper, aging has of course risen up the agenda. You've been sought after as a policy advisor. From 2014 to 2017, you served on the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology. At that time, Britain was really trying to understand what the effects of the ageing population could be. And you were commissioned to write the Foresight Report on the Future of Ageing and Population. Yes, that was, I think, a real signal of how important the UK was taking ageing. There is a statement which is made on behalf of the Government Office of Science, which says it's really important that every government department takes ageing seriously. And what I wanted to do was actually not look at pensions and healthcare because that had so much information out there but really highlight how everything had to change. You know, we, we, we had to get away from the idea that you would have uh, education when you were at school. It had to be a lifetime education with reskilling across the life course. We had to change the way we worked. But continuing to work, we had to change housing and transport and ageism, you know, attitudes. Mm. So it was a very, very thorough report. Um, David Cameron, who'd been a great supporter, he said... Look, we've got this referendum coming up. Uh, this mm. was June 2016. And he said, why don't we just get the referendum out of the way uh, and then we will have a big splash with the report. 
Um, and we all know what happened. And obviously the political scene changed. But behind the scenes, my colleagues at Whitehall continued to push. Um, Theresa May uh, made that statement that we should try and add five years of life onto everyone, i.e. tackle inequality in health and longevity by 2035. And so even though um, the actual work wasn't taken forward, hopefully Britain will be able to really um, address the ageing of its population. Well, we talked about the effect in the UK, but let's look at how this changing life expectancy and birth rates are affecting people in other parts of the world. Because you interviewed three people, all born in 1975, who grew up in economies at different stages of growth. One of the case studies was Varia in Malaysia. Tell me a little bit about her story. She had grown up in a very small town in Malaysia and she had managed to get a job in a very large Singapore hotel. And every day um, she would come by bus to this hotel. She'd do a 12-hour shift and then she would go home. And she had recently uh, married and he wanted to have children. And her view was, no, no, uh, you know, I'm far too tired to have children. And also, I love Singapore. I love the modern world. And that to me really resonated because it was very clear that a lot of women were having to make those kind of decisions that here in Europe, we are able to have children and stay in the workplace. But she knew that if she had a baby, she would leave this wonderful job in Singapore that she was really enjoying and she'd go back and live with his mother-in-law. When I met her uh, a couple of years later, she had a child. And I said, tell me, how did this happen? And she said, well, actually, the hotel were very, very supportive. They gave me time off and they um, allow me to do shift work so that I can bring up my child. And I said, that's wonderful. Are you going to have more children? And she said, absolutely not. I want this child to have the best, you know, the best gym shoes, the best uniform at school. So I'm going to put all my resources into this child. And when you look at that kind of ethnographic account, you realise that that's why we have childbearing rates just plummeting in Southeast Asia, because many of those women are looking at their lives and saying they're going to change completely if we have a child. And then when they have that child, they want that child to be the best. So how does her example compare with, say, the other case study, Lisa? Lisa was very different. She had made a decision to leave her country, to come to the UK. She worked in publishing. She did not want children. So she was going to be child-free for her life. And there's some really interesting research that the obligation to reproduce among younger people has actually gone. And when you put that in line with economic issues, with overpopulation, with climate change, you can begin to understand why someone like Lisa represents a whole body of women who want to be child-free. And this is, this is the opposite, almost, to, to the example of Samir in Niger. Well, in Niger, she had absolutely no option. I mean, Samir was married at 12 to her father's friend and he was a much older man. And by the time she was 13, she had her first child. Wow. And so by the time, you know, she was in her early 20s, she had had, I think, nine children who had lived. She was a grandmother already at 40 uh, to several children. So uh, having children just completely dominated her life. Mm. And so as economies advance and levels of education increase and so on, we are seeing that women, if they have children, are tending to have them later in life and having fewer children. Yes. And if they're having more than one child, often to space them out as well. Mm. But you became aware of an anomaly in Uganda 
and that kick-started one of your most important studies. Mm. People are often surprised that the Institute works on fertility because they say that you work on ageing, but the ageing of our societies is driven by falling fertility. And we had um, a Ugandan visitor who was an anthropologist and she pointed out that very unusually, very highly educated urban-based professional women in Uganda still wanted large families. Now, that was obviously very interesting. We saw it among different ethnic groups. We saw it among different religions and in different parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And in the end, what we decided was, if you're going to empower women to have the number of children they want, then they're going to choose the number of children that is good for them and their households. And what was becoming very clear was that these women still were saying, we live in a very insecure environment. There's high unemployment, there's civil strife. We don't know where the next meal is coming from in some cases. So we are going to reduce the number of children we have now. But as soon as things get better, we will have our third, fourth or fifth child because we want two children that we can send away as migrants to send back remittances. Mm. But we still want to keep two children at home. And I think that is a really interesting, almost a wake up call. And if you consider that the UN has predicted that we are going to have around about uh, 10 billion, maybe 12 billion by the end of the century. That is based on the idea that the fertility transition in sub-Saharan Africa is going to be the same as it was throughout the rest of the world. And we are saying it may not be. And also, if these women want to have three or four children, you know, we, we, we have to accept that because we've given them the same education and they have made the same choices that are good for them. But mm-hmm. it could mean that Africa actually has a far larger population than we currently uh, It, it won't just follow the pattern of, of the developing the world. Yes. N- not necessarily, mm-hmm. no. Why then is it important that we monitor these changes in population globally? It's important because the whole demography of a country or of a region dictates what policy we should have. It it isn't just as simple as saying, you know, if you have large numbers of children coming through, you need more education. Mm. It's a matter of saying, well, look, we can see, you know, where the sort of baby bulge is going to go through a population. We can see how that population in the future is going to change. And then we can plan for the kind of services that we need in our society. And I think what people sometimes forget is that nowadays, it isn't just the number of people, it's the consumption. So maybe the impact of population growth in a country like Niger puts less of a strain on the planet's resources than, say, the USA. Yeah, absolutely. But it's sort of, well, I think it's unthinkable that in the 21st century, we are not going to have the kind of consumption of goods and services and food in a sub-Saharan African country that we're seeing here in Europe. But in order for those people to be able to have the standard of living that we have, we've really here in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe and the US, have got to look at our own consumption. So population and environment, those two worlds haven't always come together. But I think increasingly it's really important that we understand that one of the problems with large numbers of people it's also that we are taking away land, uh, Mm. that biodiversity is being threatened. Throughout your career, Sarah, there's been a debate about the relationship between population and economic growth. You argue that population structure is more important than size. What happens when people channel their resources of education, health, well-being into fewer children? Can you tell me why that's important? 
So we have something called the demographic dividend. And the demographic dividend traditionally has been seen that if you have large numbers of workers in a population, young workers, you'll be able to drive your economy. But it's really important to understand whether those young workers have lots of children. Because if those young workers have a lot of younger dependents and potentially older dependents, then the resources in the family or the household and indeed in the country have to be spent on looking after the dependents mm. rather than being able to drive that kind of economic growth. So the age structure is really important. And that's why falling fertility, reducing childbearing is really important for households and communities and countries because it reduces the number of dependents. Mm. And given that migration is such a hot topic at the moment in the news, you say that many advanced economies have relied on the migration of workers from abroad to compensate for their own population ageing. Can you explain this? If you look at what happened in Europe and to a certain extent also in the United States, we very happily exported economic goods down to Asia and Africa in particular. And we imported human capital um, in the form of migrant workers. And that compensated for the fact that our populations were getting older. We were having fewer children and more older dependents. However, of course, migration isn't the only way to solve this. And that's because when we look at dependency ratios and we say, oh, we've got to bring more young workers in, we are often thinking of older adults in a way that our grandparents were. And yet older adults today, they are, many of them are highly educated, they are fit and they are healthy, and they're very able to remain active in our workplaces for far, far longer. And you only have to sort of push the group that is included in the word workers a little way, and you really compensate for what we call, you know, the dependency ratio. And what about the impact of new technologies? You know, we, we sometimes worry that because we have an ageing population, we won't have enough people to do the jobs. But we also have technology coming in. And you sometimes think that those people who are worrying about work from the aspect of technology and those people who are worrying about work from the aspect of ageing don't really talk to each mm, other. Mm. And so I think we need a much more holistic view. And one of the really interesting things is that in our new technological world, Interestingly, the kind of things that particularly robots are good at are the kind of fast thinking tasks that younger people are good at. And we're going to have fewer of them. The things that even AI at the moment is not so good at is the creative, lateral, strategic thinking. And that's something that older people from 40 onwards, we tend to increase our ability to do that. So in a modern knowledge economy, an older workforce and technology actually can complement each other very well. R rather than add to the problem yes. they're, they're, they're yes. acting against each other yes. yeah. Sarah having studied ageing for most of your life mm -hmm. you're now at an age yourself if you don't mind me saying it which your work is sort of about you how does that feel well, I've just become a grandmother. Uh, I have a, a two-day-old wow. granddaughter called Ivy. And it, it's uh, a very interesting experience, as you say, that, you know, I've, I've looked at the family and I've, I've even had projects which looked at the changing role of grandparents. Uh, and here I am, one myself. So you've spent your life making recommendations about retirement. 
Any thoughts on your own? I'm very lucky. Uh, I, I still run the Institute and at Oxford I can continue for several years. And I think that it, it's really important that more and more people have the choice of when to retire. And that comes from being able to uh, have enough health to be able to continue in their jobs and a society which allows them to do that. So I've got three books on the go uh, and another uh, really big research project uh, coming up. So no, I, I'm not going to retire yet. Until they're, well, 103, I guess. <laughs> Sarah Harper, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Remarkable personal stories. Betrayal. It runs through my life and runs through my story. Deep dive documentaries. These children are using their own bags, not to carry books, but they carry the drug markets in Sweden on their shoulders. And sport, but not as you know it. There's this massive landslide of myth. And somewhere in there is the truth. The BBC World Service tells the world's stories. Search for Lives Less Ordinary, the documentary, and amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.